Let me ask you, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Uh, for breakfast, I had coffee. Um, yeah, that was breakfast. I did have lunch, so my mom wouldn't be too sad to hear that. At least I ate. Hi, I'm Tim. Welcome to We're Only Human, a podcast celebrating the resiliency of the human spirit through conversations with extraordinary people. We talk about all aspects of life here, imposter syndrome, breaking free from the script, living with intention, boundaries with family, what it means to be vulnerable, and the fact that we're all really just making this up as we go along. We're not perfect. We're not alone. We're only human. Today I'm joined by Shane Snow. He's a son, brother, husband, entrepreneur, co-founder of a company called Contently back in the day, and also an author, wrote Smart Cuts in 2014, and then the book Dream Teams Working Together Without Falling Apart in 2018. And as I mentioned, Shane, I've read your book twice now, um, the most recent being this past summer. And you share this story in the book about the worst day of your life as you describe it, where you start the day at the Contently offices, your company's offices, Later on, you're interviewing a billionaire on stage at Columbia University about his book, and then you find yourself in the evening at the Soho House speaking about your work to a group, including Bill and I, the science guy. And then you leave, and you realize, I have nowhere to sleep tonight because I'm homeless. And that I just stopped when I read that. And I'm really curious, what, what did you learn about yourself that night? Yeah, it's... Uh... It's um, one of those things that at the time did not seem like something I ever would want to write about. Um, and yet now sure. I, I am <laughs> I'm grateful for the experience. Uh, and first of all, thank you for, you know, for reading and, and for, uh, you know, bringing it up. Um, it, it was strange. It, I mean, it's strange how people's perceptions of you and how successful you are and what must be going on in your life can be so different and what's actually going on internally or, you know, in my case, then logistically, you know, I was in a place where I, I just got divorced. I was uh, kind of in financial ruin and I had not yet started to ask friends for help. And I had some very good friends who, you know, who came to my rescue and, and did help me out uh, during that time. But, uh, you know, I was learning about myself and asking for help. Um, and that's why it ended up being part of the epilogue of dream teams, right? So I had my own dream team that, kind of helped me get through my own problems and, and, and helped me sort of get back on my feet. But, uh, I mean, I, I guess the best answer to your question is it, it felt unreal or surreal. Like I think just being in such a different place than everyone thinks you are. And for me, I think the surreal part about it was that I was still pretending that everything was fine. And, uh, you know, now I think I've learned the lesson that you don't have to do that, <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, even just to digress a little bit, it gives me more perspective on homelessness in general. You know, I had people who were willing to help me, you know, I have family back home. I had a safety yeah. net. Um, and a lot of people who are homeless, and I know this from, from having met a lot of people and having done interviews with homeless people for a stretch during my journalism career, uh, a lot of people do have someone back home that they can, you know, they could take the train from New York down to South Carolina and stay with their aunt, but they're so ashamed of where they are in their lives that they don't do it. And that's something that I learned, you know, in my own way for being homeless for a few weeks uh, that a lot of people are, are struggling with. And it's not so simple as just, you know, just ask for help or just pick yourself up. It, uh, it can be a really debilitating state of mind to be in when you're in that kind of place. You mentioned that you, did you feel like at that time that you had to like maintain this perception that, Oh, I'm, everything's great. I'm successful and there's nothing wrong in my life and don't worry. It's, it's all fine. Like, did you feel like you had to maintain that for somebody? Absolutely. And I think part of that is actually coming from me, coming from my personality. Uh, sure. But I, I think that it ties into, you know, a topic that I know that you, you like to talk about, which is, you know, the imposter syndrome, right? It can't be true that I have yeah. 
written best-selling books and I'm running a company and giving people jobs and that I'm currently, you know, in financial ruin and debt and don't have a place to sleep. Uh, those two things can be true, but, uh, but it's in, in my own head invalidated everything else that was going on that, you know, someone, a, a good friend would shake you and say, Hey, you know, things you do have a lot to bring to the world. Um, and, and you are bringing a lot to the world. So it, that could be true and it can be true that you're struggling right now. But I, I think that that imposter syndrome is, you know, in my case, and I think unlike, you know, talking about other people who are homeless, unlike a lot of cases, part of what, where my shame stemmed from was the imposter syndrome. I think for other people, it's other things. And, and that's a function of personality. Yeah. You, you said that, um, you mentioned earlier that now you realize you don't need to maintain like sort of that perception. What changed and like what changed within you that you now, you know, recognize maybe I don't need to worry about that. I think the the immediate thing is that people did help me out. You know, I tell the story in that epilogue about how I finally broke down and, and talked to a, a mentor of mine when he called to, to ask me something. And I felt safe talking to him about this because he had been an addict. He had, I don't know if he had been homeless at one point, but he had been in, you know, he'd been locked up a couple of times and he had, he had been very open about his past life when he'd made lots of mistakes. And, uh, and so I felt safe kind of telling, opening up to him a little bit. And then he was amazing. He was of course supportive. And then as soon as I, you know, as I told anyone what was going on, I got all these offers for, you know, for help and places to stay. And I'd been bouncing around couches, but not really telling people what was going on. Like, oh, my wife and I are having problems, like that sort of thing. Um, not, I'm broken and, and we're splitsies. Uh, so, you know, I, I learned that. But also the reason why I ultimately decided to write about it was because I had been doing this work, studying teams, teams in history and the, you know, the social dynamics and psychology of people working together. And... Uh, you know, a, a few years out of this experience, you know, five years or whatever it was when I started working on that, I, uh, I became so convinced that it's just so clear that the way we get better is by employing the thinking and the services of other people. If you want to think differently than you think, have someone else push your thinking. If you want to, you know, climb higher in whatever it is, it's a lot harder to do that on your own than by asking for help. And so I was knee deep in that when I realized that that was part of my own story as well. So I think it maybe took me a little while to realize that. But I will tell you that I am now kind of in, in many ways the opposite about asking for help for people uh, with things I'm working on, especially. But I, I, I see that shame monster as my enemy to progress. And so, you know, I just... This morning, I was bothering my little brother, who's a he's a fiction writer. I was bothering him for help in uh, in wording some things that I was writing, and it's something that I might not have done before because it's sort of embarrassing that I I don't know how to solve this little you know writing problem. But it's like, hey, this is how I'm going to get better is by asking someone for help. Oh yeah, I, I know what you mean. I, I was someone also that I, I'm better now, as you said, but I in the past not so good at all. It, I always felt like I can just, if if I'm asking someone for help, then it's a sign of weakness and it's a sign of like, how could you not know what you're doing? Like, how could you not know how to do this? And like, maybe you feel the same way now you look back and you're like, well, no, that's silly. Like, like you just said, there's no way. And I love how you tie that in too, like, especially in business, but I think in life, like the idea of teams and group work and just like, we can't get through this alone, whatever we're trying to do you need others around you. It's pretty much that simple, I think. <laughs> yeah. And I do think that there are contexts where it's harder to ask for help. You know, there's industries, you know, look at Hollywood, right. Or, or look at, you know, I think a lot of industries when you're just fresh out of school, or maybe you haven't gone to school on your entry level, where if you don't seem to know what you're doing, people will be kind of cruel. Uh, not everyone, but often people will. But those are people who are not, you know, in many ways worth working with, but they're not on your side. You know, asking for help from someone who cares or from someone who's smart doesn't make you look more stupid. There may be some contexts where there's politics and stuff. And I think that even in those contexts, it's really hard to walk away from any conversation where someone says, I don't know this 
can you teach me? Or, you know, how do I go about getting better at this? It's hard to walk away from that kind of conversation and say, this person is stupid. It's a lot easier to take away uh, that from the opposite of that pretending like I know everything. And then, you know, the emperor has no clothes. That's the kind of person that looks more foolish than someone who says, I need to learn. How can I? I have the confidence that I can get better. I just need some help knowing how or, you know, getting in the right spot. I, uh, so I, I do think that despite the different contexts being a little bit harder, it's in general that principle, you know, holds true. We get better by asking for help or by employing the services and the thinking of other people. I love that. We get better by asking people for help. You mentioned your mentor earlier. Was that the mentor in the epilogue you describe? You're on the phone with him and he said, it's going to hurt and that's okay. And that sort of relieved you. I, I love that because I think we're, I, I imagine you felt this way. We're, we're so like, I think just as humans, we, we run away from the hurt. Like we don't want to feel pain ideally, but in that moment where you sort of like, wait a second, he, he was able to feel pain and he's okay. Maybe it's okay if I start to feel this too and kind of work through it. Yeah. I, I'm glad, I'm glad you noticed that. Um, I, I think he nailed it that so many people will tell you it's going to be okay. You know, and they're saying that because they have confidence in you, which, yeah. you know, especially the time when you don't have confidence in yourself, that might seem like the right thing to say. But if you don't have confidence in yourself or you're like, yeah, easy for you to say this really sucks right now. Actually, for me in that moment, him saying, hey, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. This is going to suck. This is going to hurt. And that's okay. That, uh, that makes a big difference. It, it reminds me actually of a, a silly, I say silly, but a, a New Year's resolution I set for myself couple of years ago, which was I wanted to get better at uh, sitting through discomfort, whether it's physical discomfort or, you know, so, social situations, whatever it is, where, you know, normally my internal monologue would be, I want to get out of here. And, uh, and part of the thing that I, you know, I tell myself is it's okay to be uncomfortable. It's okay to be in pain. You can feel those things and be okay. Not it's going to be okay, or it's going to get better, or this will be over soon it's okay to feel bad. And, uh, you know, maybe that's not the right advice in every situation, but that was something that I certainly learned from him in that situation. The year that you had the resolution of sitting or becoming more comfortable sitting in discomfort, what were some of the ways that you tried to achieve that resolution that year? So some of it was physical challenges. Um, you know, things like, I started doing cryo uh, therapy, which is where you, you sit in a, a giant freezing tank, essentially. It's like what athletes do to, for muscle recovery and supposedly it's healthy for you. Um, that does so seem uncomfortable. That, yeah. So there are things like that that I decided to do as a way to, to kind of work on this. I also, for my whole life, I've had a debilitating fear of heights. And so for a few years at that point, I've been working on exposing myself to heights and, uh, and working on that. But that was a situation where I could very uh, concretely say, it's okay being uncomfortable. The fear of heights is not going away. Just my ability to deal with it uh, is, uh, is getting you know, stronger. Um, but then I, I found myself repeating that or some variant of that in my head during, you know, social situations I didn't want to be in. Someone's talking to you for a long time. You don't want to be in the conversation where normally I think I'd either try to be polite and then be miserable, or I would end up, you know, being impolite and leaving. Um, but there's also, so, and then I would say to myself, you know, it's okay to be uncomfortable, see what you can learn from this, see what you can get out of this, or just, you know, getting out of this, what you're getting out of this is practicing your, ability to be uncomfortable. But then there's also another part of it that I, I kind of discovered, which is sometimes the discomfort that I need to be okay with is disappointing someone by saying, I, I don't want to continue this conversation or I got to go or whatever it is. Uh, actually, my when I was working on this, uh, my therapist uh, brought up that uh, like a related thing that I could say to myself is Adults are okay with being disappointed or adults can handle being disappointed. Other adults can handle pain, um, you know, and, uh, and for me, that was, uh, yeah, a, a variation of this idea that sometimes the discomfort that I'm avoiding is actually because I don't want to let someone down or disappoint them or hurt them or whatever. But when that might be better for the rest of the people in my life or for me, 
um, it's like, it's okay. And so that's, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of places you can go with that. And I, I won't pretend like I'm the best at it, but it definitely helps, especially if you have avoidance issues. Like you don't want to tell people that you're in trouble and you need help. Uh, it helps being able to, to say, you know what, it's okay to be uncomfortable. Let's, uh, let's get better at it by letting people in. You mentioned earlier that you were getting advice from your your younger brother about writing. Um, I think I heard somewhere you have six siblings, all younger. Yep. What's I, I have two siblings and I'm the oldest, but um, I what I'm curious about is, and there might be no correlation here, but you wrote this book about teams and you did all this research. Was any of that inspired by growing up with so many siblings and all of you kind of being, I imagine, hopefully at one point, on the same team? That's such a good question. I guarantee that subconsciously that's part of what's going on. Right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I don't know that I deliberately, other than when I started looking at teams, I, I wanted to, uh, I was really fascinated by this idea that when we think of teams, we think of the five people playing basketball with you or the, you know, the people in the cubicles next to you that you've been assigned as a team. But you know, neighborhoods are teams and families are teams and humanity is a team. So I, that component of it, thinking about how every family ought to function by the same principles, you know, you're working on different kinds of problems if you're a family versus a, you know, a team making software. But, um, but ideally, you know, you have parents that are each bringing something different to the table and that's why they got together. And that's why it makes sense to stay together as they make each other better and they make the family better that's kind of in line with the same principle that you see in, you know, and these other types of teams. So I will say that that was a component growing up. I decided that I never wanted to have kids because I hated kids for a stretch of my life because I was the oldest of seven kids. (laughs) And and there was a point when we were all old enough that we didn't get on each other's nerves so much. And I was old enough that I'd kind of matured out of being a jerk. Uh, at least in, in that kind of context. And so now, uh, now we're great and there's enough of us and we're spread out and we have, you know, different things going on. And, you know, I have a brother who has five kids and, uh, you know, a sister that has three kids and, and I don't have any kids. And so there's, you know, different clusters of us that have more in common. So my brother that writes, and I have a sister who's uh, an artist, the three of us are kind of the most close in that sort of pod. And we help each other out with our projects um, but you know, all of us, it does feel like we are more of a team now than when, when we were kids, although I'm, I'm just rambling now, but, uh, a big component of my growing up experience was building stuff with my brother who was like my arch nemesis, but also my, you know, partner <laughs> in these things. So we built forts so that we could then throw water balloons at each other. We built go-karts so that we can then race each other. Um, and so there is this component there that as as you know from having read dream teams of this kind of constructive conflict this rivalry that isn't really about killing each other but more about getting better i want my go-kart to be better so i can beat matt but also so that we can have more fun um not because i want him to cry uh so there is that component that I, i certainly experienced growing up I love how you said the arch nemesis and like, and also the, uh, it reminds me, I have two kids and a boy and a girl. And that's exactly that one moment they're arch nemesis. And then the next moment they're working together to build something great as a team. And then they're back yeah. to being arch nemesis. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I want nothing more than to beat this guy. But also, yeah, if like the neighbor kids come over and start throwing snowballs at us, like we're teaming up and we're going to beat them, <laughs> which I, I think is a very human thing. That reminds me of the, 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 you talk about that in your book. Was it the Wright brothers, the inventors of the plane, where they're in their shop and they're shouting at each other, but they weren't angry. They were both, they would each take one side of the argument for a certain period of time and then they would flip flop and they would both have to argue the other side of the argument. And then through that process, they were able to sort of see different perspectives. This, what you just described of you and your brother kind of reminds me of that. Yeah. I mean, I love that Wright brothers story. They, it was kind of their trick. They, they knew that they needed to kind of explore further than they naturally were going to, especially if they agreed with each other, especially if they have lived fairly similar lives. And so they, you know, they're going to go down the similar intellectual territory naturally. So they use this uh, kind of 
debate and switch thing as a way to force themselves to kind of get outside of their own box. Um, and, uh, but the, the switch part is the important part because without that, they would be in danger of things getting personal or really wanting to win so bad that they would fight dirty or whatever. And you see this in, you know, in debates all the time where, uh, the goal is to win or the goal is to destroy the other person, but you don't learn something new if that's just your goal. If the goal is to learn, then you behave differently in a debate. You'll be willing to take another side and explore, you know, someone else's point of view. You'll be willing to take a, uh, I guess, a position that you don't believe in so that you can understand it and explore it and then maybe see if you change your mind as a result. So that's, that's the kind of behavior that you learn from those guys. And it's incredibly hard to do. Right, because uh, in real life we have incentives for being right, you know, and winning. Um, but I, that's why I think that stuff like the the kids stuff, or you know, in, in the book I talk about uh, music, you know, with hip hop groups, where if winning is actually this sort of thing that you share in. So for my brother and I, winning is we build an awesome fort, or we get to have go kart races. Not winning is not he's gone and I'm by myself. Right. Uh, then that, you know, that changes it. So you're, you're willing to, you know, in, in psychology terms, I, I, in the book, I bring up intellectual humility. You're willing to have that, uh, you know, admit that there's there's maybe better ways to think of things than just the way that you think or that you thought of first. And, uh, you know, in, I think in business and work, often we're going to give the promotion to whoever comes up with the right idea or takes credit for it. Um, you know, you're going to get the praise if you win the debate rather than, uh, yeah. you know, incentivizing the team's victory. And, and I think in part, that's why I like, despite not being a sports guy, I like sports as an example of that, where if the team loses, if you are selfish and are out for yourself and increase your stats, then, you know, that sort of creates some behavior to maybe sacrifice for the team more than you might in a, you know, a, a different context like business where, we're looking after our own careers often more than we are after the, you know, the thing that we're building together with people. I'm not a sports guy either, but I remember the beginning of your book always stuck with me that that story of, I think it was the five gentlemen and the hockey team from the Russian hockey team Mm -hmm. from some Olympics, but you kind of set up this story about how they were the, the killer team, just the five of them together could beat anyone. And then at some point they all spread out and they all get, assigned to other teams and they're no longer on the same team and then they all suck and then eventually yep. somebody brings them back together i think it was the, the red wings and then all of a sudden they're amazing again when they're on the same team again not a sports guy but i was like this is fascinating like i was so curious it's like why how how do you do that so um thanks for being able to even appeal to the non-sports folks i'm glad to hear that yeah i mean anyone who's listening that I think might be part of the free Amazon preview of the book. So you can, can go oh, there you and, go. <laughs> and read that. Um, but I, I love that story. And, and I think I mean, there's other sports stories that I've come across that I, I think are, are interesting that way. But I, I think especially hockey or basketball or these sports where it is a complex system that's going on. It's, it's not like baseball where it's kind of a one-on-one matchup half the time pitcher yeah. versus, uh, you know, hitter. Um, batter. <laughs> um, but with these sports that are more complex, I, I don't really care about the sport itself and who wins and all of that. I don't really have teams. Um, but in those cases, the, uh, the strategy is so interesting. And I think you do see this theme where, uh, it, uh one of the reasons why the Soviet hockey team was so good is they kind of played communist hockey <laughs> where, uh, it's, no matter how many points you scored, if the team lost, then you were screwed, basically. And it was a little bit brutal in that way. Um, but uh, everything you did had to be to the benefit of the team um, rather than kind of the individualistic hockey that, you know, the Canadian and American teams were playing at the time. So that that's not the whole story, but that was one component of it. And, uh, and you see, you know, we're not talking about economics here. Uh, you know, of uh, economic communism is a very different thing, but this mindset of, doesn't matter who the individual is, um, ends up being in that kind of sports context. Very, very interesting. Uh, so I, the one sport I'm a fan of actively is formula one and, uh, you know, motor racing and it's a very different thing. It's so individual driven. 
there's so much politics around, you know, the driver that doesn't have a seat on the team for the next year. So they're kind of trying to perform in a way that gets the other teams interested. And then there's, uh, you know, the good drivers will give credit to the pit crew and the people doing strategy and helping them out and building the cars. But you see a lot of frustration where, you know, something goes wrong and the driver will blame the crew. Well, you know, <laughs> it's, and so I think that's fascinating. I, I love it because I love the mechanics of, of cars and stuff, but, uh, but a very different kind of incentive structure in that sport uh, versus the team sport like hockey. But anyway, that's, I, I digress. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because you you said the sport of, of Formula One racing, and I was like, oh, I didn't ever even thought about that. Is like because it does seem so individualistic to me. But I guess there are teams of people. I mean, the driver alone can't make that all happen. I suppose. Yeah. Well, one thing I wrote about in Smart Cuts actually was about uh, the pit crews in Formula One. They you could think of more as you know kind of the team that we're thinking of, um, where their job is: the car pulls off the road, mm-hmm. and they take off the tires and put on new tires, maybe fix you know some damage or whatever, and they're trying get the car back on the track in a few seconds that requires a lot of coordination a lot of very smart counterintuitive collaboration but it's also you know there's this weakest link thing where if you screw up then the you know the driver is in huge trouble and it's all your fault and you feel terrible about yourself but they are more of this uh organism that's uh you know unified like this hive mind kind of thing um and that that's super interesting to watch how they work uh, it's it is amazing to see someone tear apart a car and put it together in three seconds or less. Yeah, whenever I've seen that on TV, it just that blows my mind. I mean, the amount of like it, it's almost like a performance, like the amount of choreography you need to make that mm-hmm. happen. I mean, I know nothing about it, and I have never gotten close to learning, but I I have a lot of respect for being able to just pull that off. Yeah, it's pretty inspiring. It's cool to watch. You mentioned earlier that you like used to have trouble, just as I have, asking for help, and now you are much more comfortable. You gave the example of talking to your younger brother. What what changed for you that brought you to the point where it's no longer uncomfortable to ask for help? Yeah, so some of it is just life experience, like we've been talking about. Um, I think a big one was this realization that you get respect from the smartest people that you want on your side by asking smart questions or by asking any questions by being willing to admit that you don't know everything, but that you're willing to learn. I think that that was a big one and is still one that I, you know, I use all the time. I think some of it is, you know, I've had really good agents, so literary agent, you know, TV screenwriting agent, um, speaking agent who I think in all those cases were willing to take me on, even though I was you know, green and imperfect. And part of how I built the relationships with all of them was by asking for advice and just seeing how well it works to, you know, I, I got one of the top literary agents in New York by literally getting a meeting set up so that I could ask him questions about how to, build a career as an author. It wasn't asking him to represent me or to sign me. And so those conversations of him helping me out showed him that I was thoughtful, that I would, you know, I wanted to learn and that I was learning and that I was uh, confident, I guess. And, uh, and made him want to work with me. And, you know, same thing happened with these other agents that I've had. So I think it's just this confirmation that it's, uh, you know, on balance, a good strategy uh, to, uh, you know, to, to seek out help and advice. Now there's certainly people who are so busy and have no reason, you know, to, to help you out. You know, if I email the CEO of Disney, cause I read his book and I wanted to give me advice on leadership, chances are he's not going to respond or he's certainly, if he does, I mean, it'd be amazing, but he's probably not going to take an hour to go meet me in person for coffee to let me ask him questions. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's a difference there between, you know, an agent who might get something out of this or whose job is to help people and to scout talent. Um, There's a difference between someone who you actually know or who someone who they trust knows you um, and a stranger, you know, asking for help. But even, you know, in, I I think it's just this progressive 
belief and comfort in asking questions. Some of this may come actually from my career in journalism, you know, where your job is asked questions and you have an excuse to ask questions that might be, uh, you know, sort of newbie questions. But, uh, but, you know, every time that I'm in a room or on a phone call and I ask a question that seems really basic and it doesn't ruin the relationship. And in fact, it actually gives them the gift of being an expert and, you know, and helping you out. It just has confirmed that. So I think it's, you know, the increasing level of comfort has come from practicing that and asking for it. So I, I think that, you know, once again, some contexts are harder, but, um, you know, I'll, I'll give an example. I can't be specific because the project is, uh, is still, you know, underway, but, uh, I, uh, my wife and I are working on a TV show and we really wanted this top producer who's done a bunch of big movies to, uh, to be our executive producer on the TV show. And, um, and he expressed interest. And then we asked if we could do a call to ask him all of the questions we have about how this process works of this, getting this kind of show done because we've never done this particular kind of thing. And that phone call could have been something that, uh, you know, that I think in my past, I would have not wanted to do that because, oh, it's revealing to this guy that, you know, we haven't done this before. Or we don't know yeah. what we're doing. Maybe we'll ask dumb questions. But, you know, by the end of that phone call, he was like, A, wants to work with us. But he also was like, hey, by the way, what other projects you got? You know, bring me other stuff. I, I, I like uh, how you guys think. And, uh, you know, so it's a recent example of this being confirmed. But it's like you can't have that happen to you and then be scared the next time you, you want to ask someone for help. It's uh, there's just too much and too much confirmation at this point that it, it usually is, uh, is pretty uh, positive. And I love how you said the gift, you know, asking someone for help, you might be giving them the gift of being an expert. That's something I never thought about. And someone pointed out and you just pointed out again, is that sometimes when you ask someone for help they then have the pleasure and the gift of giving you the help. I mean, I know when people ask me for help or whenever I'm able to help anyone, it feels so good. And that's kind of, you know, like you said, that that gift of they are now able to be that resource for you and be able to give that help and help you out. And I think that's such a great way to look at it. Yeah, it's, uh, and, you know, once again, CEO of Disney probably doesn't need the gift of, uh, you know, helping you come up with the business idea. But, you know, my little brother just today and talking to him about writing stuff, he has worked on his craft so much. And even though he's my little brother, he's still, you know, he's a professional. And so me asking him for help gave him a chance to, I I think, in a way, show just how uh, far he's come and to, to pay forward, you know, advice that he's gotten from other people. And it's kind of neat to, it's not like flipping the relationship, you know, but, uh, but I do think that it was something cool for our relationship to, uh, well, I'm, I'm actually been doing this for a while. So once we started doing that, once I started asking him for, you know, for notes on my writing, I, I think it was cool because he enjoys it. He likes being able to be the expert and share the knowledge and, uh, you know, and the result of it also is, you know, hopefully I write something cool that he then enjoys, right? And, and so I think in many ways, the fear that we're being a burden on someone is sort of unfounded. You, know, you get a lot of uh, a lot of people who, uh, you know, they, they'll talk about, it's almost like Oprah stuff. Uh, you know, you want to be happy, help other people. Well, if you want to make other people happy, give them the gift of helping. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> you know, don't make yeah. them move a piano up the stairs, but like ask them for advice. You know? <laughs> I love that. So, okay, so it wasn't. I, I asked earlier about you know all the your siblings and if that had any impact in dream teams, and we've established maybe subconsciously, but it wasn't necessarily intentionally why you decided to write about teams. Um, why did you decide to write about teams? Cause I love the subtitle of that book working together without falling apart, but I'm curious, like what that sort of impetus was for embarking on that project. Well, I have to give credit to the subtitle to Mary's son at penguin portfolio. She's the one that came up with that. Uh, really well, brilliant. Thank you, Mary. Yeah. Um, so the impetus for the book, there's a couple of things. It's, it's not as tidy of a story as, uh, you know, as, I could tell. And I think a lot of books are, are not so tidy, but you need a story. 
um, I was kind of chipping away at a few ideas at once. And at the same time, my job, I'm sort of living two lives, one job as a journalist and, uh, you know, and a writer working on things like books and another job as running this company where, uh, you know, my, my job had kind of gone from someone who's doing creative work to someone who's managing people, mostly who are doing creative work, but also managing, you know, operations people. And, uh, so it really was this transition from me managing my own work to helping teams get stuff done. And, you know, while I was chewing on some of these ideas that kind of came together in the book, I was noticing that, you know, a lot of why teamwork didn't work out was because, uh, not because people didn't have the skills, but because they couldn't figure out how to navigate each other's differences, you know, different personality types, different styles of how they work. And, and I think in particular, this uh, desire of people to have other people work the way that they want, that they work. So, you know, you and I are working on a project and we both have different ways of organizing. I want you to do my way. You want me to do your way rather than, you know, what uh, I saw in some other cases where people who are very different actually elevated each other's work because uh, they learned from each other and, uh, you know, they didn't try to change each other. They, they tried to, uh, um, you know, to learn from each other. And, uh, you know, in particular, I had this head of product and a head of design who kind of had a lot of arguments, but like we were talking about before, they're sort of the good kind of arguments out of these arguments came really cool ideas. And, uh, you know, so noticing those things and, and I was thinking about how do I facilitate that? And, and also, you know, as our company was growing, I was concerned about diversity, uh, in kind of the most, general sense that we talk about in American business, which is, you know, gender and skin color. Um, and as I started sort of fretting about what's the right way to talk about that to, you know, hire, um, and all of that, I, uh, you know, I kind of went down this series of rabbit holes with, you know, mentors and other, you know, business owners that I knew about the right way to approach that and how, you know, once you start digging in, there's so many ways that people can be different. Um, and there's so many ways that you can be well-meaning around things like gender and, uh, and race that actually hurts people's chances of success or, you know, gets you in weird situations. And so as I was trying to untangle that and understand, you know, how to be a good boss from a moral standpoint, how to be a good boss from a team building standpoint, um, at the same time, I was very interested in some of these topics journalistically that I'd been exploring around specifically immigrant behavior, which was uh, something that I thought I, I wanted to write a whole book about in, in many ways, dream teams is kind of uh, half of it is about this idea that when someone moves from one place to another and they're a fish out of water, they kind of have two choices conform to the new place or hustle or, you know, work operate in a way that actually helps them to be more inventive um, and, and more kind of additive to that new context. So you see with geographic immigrants, cities where a lot of people move, are, are immigrants and move into the, these cities, they tend to have more small businesses, more entrepreneurs, more patents. People have to, as outsiders, hustle in different ways that actually make them more inventive. So I was really interested in that. I was interested in how like immigrants across industries did interesting things or mm -hmm. taking ideas from one industry to another ended up being this sort of very common tale of innovation. So, you know, everyone talks about Einstein as this great genius, you know, he's studying physics, he's studying these math problems trying to, you know, to solve the problem. What a lot of people don't know about Einstein with relativity is he was, his day job was working at a patent office at the same time he was working on relativity had these math equations and physics problems, he was reviewing a lot of patents for clock synchronization, which apparently was this big problem back then of how do you get the clocks in, you know, Berlin and the clocks in London to sync up at the same time. So inventors were inventing these patents. Guess what? Einstein, after looking at a billion clock synchronization diagrams, has this idea that maybe space and time might be uh, related in some way. And that becomes a big, uh, you know, key thing in his uh, theory of relativity. And so this is, you could say, importing inspiration from 
the field of clock synchronization into the field of uh, you know of physics and gravity and all of that. So uh, I was really interested in those kinds of things, and, and I was calling it immigrant behavior. Like either you're forced to be more inventive, or you get uh, you import ideas, and that uh, from one place to another, and that is more inventive. Um, and then when you kind of mash those together, that you know my team stuff and and this immigrant behavior stuff, what you actually get is a pretty interesting uh, sort of fundamental theory of teamwork that uh, that breaks new ground of like innovative teams, which are which is that innovative teams are only as good, well teams are only as good as uh, the smartest or most powerful person unless people are bringing different things to the table you have a group of people that's all the same you're not going to break new ground you might have strength in numbers but you won't break new ground but if you have people who think differently who are coming from different places or bringing different ideas you have the potential to go somewhere that no one has gone no one could go on their own so that's sort of the underlying theory of dream teams and and from there Basically, I wanted to see, A, is this true? <laughs> and, uh, and B, what are the other principles that are kind of like this that you see great teams have in common? Um, not just you know, tactics for winning at hockey, but what can we learn from the hockey players that can teach us something about you know, teamwork in music or teamwork in social movements or teamwork in you know, building uh, a business? So that, that's kind of the, the – it's even a little tidier than, uh, than the – the actual messy story, but, uh, but you can see this process of, of coming to this dream teams thing was a little bit messier than just, I, you know, I wanted to get better at teams. And so I, I wanted to learn about it. <laughs> I love that. I didn't realize you're right. There is that Albert Einstein story, by the way, is that's amazing. But as I, re- as I reflect upon the book, there is a bunch of uh, immigrant related stories and, and kind of what you're mm-hmm. describing there. So that's kind of interesting to see that's where it came from. I read somewhere that you had a high school teacher, Mr. Lemons, who really had an impact on you. Um, I'm curious, like what, in what way did he have an impact on you? Oh, I love this guy. I, I don't know where you would have found that. You really, really do your research before <laughs> these interviews. That's awesome. Um, I haven't talked to Mr. Lemons in 20 years. And uh, last I heard, he's a principal of an elementary school somewhere in Idaho. And I don't, I don't know where he is now, but that's the last I heard of him. But I can't think of a better principal for an elementary school than this guy. He was the most caring and kind and uh, attentive teacher that I ever had. And I had him for computer class and typing class in high school. Um, and uh, I think he was also an advisor for some club I was in. But he, he was one of these teachers that did, it almost didn't matter what he was teaching you. Like, yes, he wanted us to learn typing, but, uh, sure. it, but really what he wanted was to make sure that we were okay. You know, he, he took time to get to know us. He wanted to know what's going on in our lives, not because he was a creep, but because he wanted to make sure that when we left his class, we left as better human beings that can help other people. And he was... He just exuded this, uh, like, I really actually care that, uh, that it made a big impact. And, and people love him. I mean, kids are cruel in the middle school and high school. You know, they make fun of teachers. They, you know, and no one made fun of this guy, even though you could say, well, he, you know, kindness and caring and being sappy, like, that's something that would be easy to make fun of. But no one dared make fun of this guy because he was, uh, he was just so good. And the thing that says it all I think is the story of when his wife uh, was diagnosed with cancer and he showed up to school with a shaved head. And at first, you know, kids are like, Oh, Mr. Lemon shaved his head. What weird, you know, that's weird. And then he shaved his head in, uh, you know, solidarity with his wife who had cancer. And every time she did chemo, he shaved his head and, and he didn't, you know, give like a sermon about this. It was just like, this was what he did. He was with you no matter who you were. And then, you know, of course his wife is somewhat extra special in his life. Um, but like, that's the kind of guy, like if, if one of us had gotten cancer, he would have shaved his head, you know? And, uh, and that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's stuck with me a long time. And the, there's something that I say, I like to say a lot. I got it from my dad, but I think, you know, Mr. Lemons uh, embodies it is uh, people are more important than stuff. You know, the grade you get on this test, whether you drop your computer in a puddle, you know, whether you wreck a car, 
you know, whatever is going on uh, at the end of the day, people are the important part. So like, that's the thing to focus on at, even if it's at the expense of, you know, grades or success or stuff for money or whatever, or, you know, in his case, his hair, hair grows back, um, you know, people and, and the experiences you have and the time you have with them, that's, uh, that's more precious. What a beautiful story. Oh my God. I can just see, I mean, the smile on your face thinking about and retelling about Mr. Lemons. That's amazing. Do you ever think about, you know, I think about the impact he had on you before we started recording. I was just telling you about the impact you had on me with your dream teens book. Do you ever think about like the impact we have on each other and the impact you specifically have around others? I, the way I think about this is we all have an impact on those we interact with, whether we like it or not. But we can kind <laughs> yeah. of hopefully direct that to be a positive one. It sounds like Mr. Lemons, I mean, whether he realized it or not, he might have just genuinely just been someone who, not even thinking about it, constantly positively impacted all those kids. Do you think about that, like your impact on those around you and those through your, you know, your work and maybe family? I, uh, I mean, I like to hear that my, you know, my work has impacted. Uh, people for the positive. So I mean, I'm incredibly flattered and delighted that, uh, you know, that you would say so. Um, I would say that what I've deliberately tried to optimize for in my career is impact. You know, I sat down a few years ago and decided that that's what, that was my metric. Um, even if it's sort of actually hard to quantify as a, as a hard metric, I, if yeah. you know, the choice was between, power, money, and impact, I'd choose impact. And, uh, you know, that's been a guiding principle. I will say that I don't know that I think about or like to think about, <laughs> maybe, maybe I should, um, you know, the, the impact I'm having on people on a day-to-day basis, you know, what is my example doing for people? What, you know, what are the, the little things that I'm doing, doing for people? I don't know. It's, it's, it's a cool question because you're making me think. Um, I would like to say that I, I try, like I genuinely try to, uh, you know, to make a difference for people and to be positive. However, life is complicated and sometimes you're in a bad mood. And you know, and that's when I, I, I think I like to not think about the impact I'm having on people um, when it's not so positive. But I don't know. I, I do think it's a good thing to, uh, to remind yourself about that, you know, to keep that in mind. Um, the hard part I think as a writer is you don't really get feedback that much. You know, I get emails from people sometimes, usually it's people who are mad at me, <laughs> but, but I get emails <laughs> sometimes from people. Um, Your book you know, ruined my you life. Get, exactly. No, it, it's usually like, I hope you die liberal scum. And I'm like, how do you know I'm liberal scum? Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Or it's like, someone presuming something, you know, and I got an email the other day that was like this thing you wrote about uh, personality psychology is wrong. And, you know, it was kind of mean, but he was kind of right. So, you know, I get that sort of thing. Um, but uh, you don't, you don't get a whole lot. I'd say you get the extremes as a writer, you get emails or comments or, you know, whatever of someone who's like, I loved your book so much. I read it twice, which is the greatest feeling in the world. Um, or, you know, I think you're a piece of garbage. <laughs> so I, I, I think a big thing for me and my personality type is I, I need to rely less than I do naturally on external feedback for my, my judge of whether something I've done is good. Um, I think especially because you can't really measure as much the impact I can, I know how many people have bought my books, but I don't know how many people read them, or how many people like them, or how many people treated people better because of them or, you know, ran a business better. Um, I, I don't know that. And so if my metric is how many reviews on Amazon are five stars or, you know, how many people email me saying, thank you for the book, then there's a lot of days in my life that I think I'd be depressed because I'm not getting that. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think if I were to ramble a bit further and summarize my thoughts on this question, I think that the impact that I have on the people that are closest to me is what I feel the best about. So my wife, although I think it's very imbalanced, like she makes me way better than I have made her, uh, but my family members and uh, my close friends, I have kind of this uh, adopted family 
of, uh, of, you know, a, a handful of friends that, you know, we talk every day and, and we've made each other better. Um, and, uh, and when I look at how I'm building up those people, that's, that makes me really happy. So if I can't rely on, you know, knowing how well I'm doing with, with readers, uh, at least I, I do know that the people who I love the most are, uh, are getting more positive from me than, than negative or neutral. I don't know. Is that kind of what you're getting at? I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I really like this question. Oh, yeah. And the way you just said, you just gave some examples of these folks that together you're each making each other better. And I love that because it sounds like you share, I'm so interested in like growing, you know, um, just as a person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as we navigate this life, I mean, hopefully we're growing and evolving and, you know, learning. And it it sounds like, you know, just you describing that, like you are interested in making yourself better, but also making those around you better. Um, is that the case? Like, are you, do you kind of look back and, and think and, and try and think, oh, did I, did I grow this past year? Did I grow this past decade? Like, am I making progress as a person? I do. You know, and a, a big thing that I like to do is uh, I like to journal and I like to use my journal as a, as an integration exercise where I like to write about what I've been through and not just, you know, today X, Y, and Z happened, but I like to every day add, and here's what I've learned from that, or here's what I can do to incorporate, you know, this into my life. And that as just as a routine of mine, I think helps me to, especially when I'm depressed or, you know, like feeling a little down on myself because everyone has off days where they, they don't feel or perform or look their best. Um, being able to look at my journal and see how far I've come from, you know, last year or five years ago or whatever it is. That's a, to me, that's been a cool way to remind myself that, uh, that I am making progress. And then part of what I do as a writer is I, I do document some of those things, you know, and I have a newsletter where I'm a little bit more, uh, I share a little bit more about things I'm personally learning or working on, um, and so, uh, you know, some of that is, is public facing as well. But I, I totally recommend journaling as a, not an exercise of like leaving something behind for the next generation, which is fine if you want to do that. But when it clicked for me, that journaling could be a way for me to incorporate what I'm going through into my life to get better. Um, that made journaling a lot more interesting and, and important. And, you know, I still take pictures and you know, my journals on Evernote. So I, I put pictures of where I'm at and where I'm going, you know, that goes into my journal as well. So there's some documentation, but it's mostly about that integration thing. And I think that makes a huge difference. Yeah, I, that's, that's great advice. I've never like tried actual journaling and I've spoken like folks with yourself who have all these, you know, many people have different techniques for it. Um, it's, it, I, just curious now, is it something you do like first thing in the morning every day or is it whenever throughout the day you're feeling it or like, how do you approach that? I usually do it in the morning. I don't do it every day, every few days usually. Uh, and I'll go on stretches where I'll do it every day. But, um, you know, usually it's a, a couple, few times a week. And for me, it's part of my morning ritual where I, you know, I get up, I, I kind of get ready and then I go and I sit down and coffee and I do my journal entry. That's usually how I do it. However, I have at different points done sort of running journals. So I did this thing. This is the best example of it. This thing a couple of years ago that was a, a lie journal, which was I, I kind of found myself at one point a little bit distraught by the uh, the dissonance between my life as a journalist where I take you know, ethics really seriously and, you know, seeking the truth as fully as possible and not being deceptive. I take that very, very seriously to the point that it's actually annoying sometimes to you know, other people where it's like, well, you know, you can, you know, change the, that quote to a past tense. It's fine. Um, but I, there was a, you know, a kind of a schism between that and how in my personal life, I was kind of decided that I was very willing to tell a lot of white lies, you know, uh, like I'm around the corner you text your friend when you're really five blocks away, not a huge deal, but you know, when you notice that you're very wrong to do that, what I, where I found myself was I had, uh, I kind of done some things that had screwed some things up for me, 
<laughs> by basically not being fully honest with someone. And, um, and it was totally avoidable. And, you know, it's one of those things that could be in a cartoon where it's like the, the cartoon character lies and it doesn't really matter. But then in order to keep that up, it's like suddenly, you know, they find themselves in this huge predicament. And I was like, this cartoony thing that I have done to myself, is it because I'm just way too comfortable bending the truth and exaggerating and, you know, telling white lies as a way to make my day easier? And so that was the theory. And so I started doing this lie journal where I would keep a running tally of white lies that I would tell throughout the day. And it oh, really wow. took like, yeah. So, you know, I have on my phone and my, you know, I, I think I was using Evernote for it. Um, some app like that where I just had the, you know, the app open and I would swipe to it when I'm like, I'm at the restaurant and they're like, do you want fries? And I'm like, no, uh, because I'm, you know, uh, I'm not doing carbs and uh, they're like, okay. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm doing carbs. I just said that cause I didn't want them. Like, cause I don't want to do carbs, but I'm, I'm doing carbs. And so it's like, normally you wouldn't care about that sort of thing, but I was like, Oh, write it down. Great. Okay. That's an example. And it really only took like four days for that list to go from like 20 things a day to two or three things a day. And, but when, you know, when I started doing it, it's like 20 times a day, I'm telling someone something that is not quite true. And most of the time it's not like something huge, but it's, it's enough that, uh, that I thought was a really fascinating exercise and personal growth. And, uh, so after a couple of weeks of doing that, I, I wrote about it a little bit and I, I stopped doing the lie journal because I found myself just being much more aware of, uh, you know, what I was saying. And, and also to this, you know, comfort, comfort with being uncomfortable, um, that's, that's part of that too. A lot of times we'll say, you know, I'm, I'm around the corner cause we're too uncomfortable to say, I'm going to make you late, <laughs> you know? Um, but then you are making them late. So what's the point of that? So, uh, just being uncomfortable saying like, Hey, I screwed up on, you know, I'm going to be late. That's actually ends up being a kinder move and you get more respect. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of benefits to that. Long story short is there's different things you can do with journaling, um, that can be sort of a more ongoing thing. And some of the stuff that I, I teach in, uh, so I, I have all of my writing that I do and then I do, um, public speaking and, and I, I do some online courses for, uh, for business teams, uh, where I teach some of these things in kind of more of an online education context. And, uh, and there's a couple of areas where keeping in like an ongoing journal is, uh, is actually part of the assignment that I, I teach people. So usually it's not the lie journal, actually never it's the lie journal, um, <laughs> unless someone's working on that sort of thing, but I have, you know, specific assignments around, uh, for example, pay attention and write down anytime someone says, I feel when it's not a feeling like that's the assignment doing for two days. Um, and, oh, cool. uh, and that turns into the next assignment, which is, you know, notice when you are conflating thinking and feeling and write it down. And then the assignment is, you know, kind of log them. And then at the end of the day or in the morning, when you do a proper journal entry, write for yourself, the context. So you said, you caught yourself saying, I feel like that plan isn't going to work in the meeting, you know, remember to log that down in your journal. And then when it's time for integration, write down you know, what was the situation. Um, and okay. So you said you feel like the plan is going to, isn't going to work. And the, the instructions are basically, what was the actual feeling? You know, uh, the feeling might be nervousness or the feeling might be fear or, you know, yeah, that sort of thing. Okay. So now that you've identified that unpack, you know, if it's fear, what are you afraid of? You're afraid of the thing failing, you're afraid of whatever. Now, uh, you know, it's, it's like a four-step thing. Now, right, you know, so write it out. Basically, you think that the plan is going to work because you're feeling X, Y, and Z. And upon analysis, this helps you understand it more. That's so sort of an emotional intelligence exercise. But, uh, but it's an example of, you know, ongoing journaling that, uh, you know, when, when you ask, uh, you know, about different ways to use journaling, I go to that kind of practical, either the daily integration or this sort of assignments that make uh, noticing things, um, you know, kind of, uh, yeah, uh, productive, I guess. Oh, I love that. I think it's such a great example of how to get the most out of that technique. Shane, thank you so much for chatting. I enjoyed this so much. I hope you did. And I just 
thank you so much. I'm so I am. I'm just so happy. Thank you. Thank, thank you. No, I mean, uh, I'm, it's incredibly flattering to be able to talk about uh, these things that I uh, like and, and write about. And also your interest in my story um, is, uh, is humbling. So thank you. And uh, thanks for doing all the research, too, and finding out about Mr. Lemons. I'm, I'm so happy to have been able to talk about him, remember him a little bit. Thanks for listening to We're Only Human. Before you go, I would love to know what you had for breakfast this morning. Just send me an email, tim at we'reonlyhumanpodcast.com, and let me know what you had for breakfast this morning. Thanks.